The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, here's the question for you, 1030. If I took this front row out, what would you do? Back up, yeah. I don't know when the front row ceases to be the front row, but this is unacceptable, okay? I'll just let you know that. Uh, good, good morning. Welcome to Fathom. My name's Chris. Uh, I am the lead pastor here. If I didn't get a chance to meet you on your way in, uh, nice to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, online folks, we love you. We're glad that you are with us as well. We've got a lot of work to do. So uh, if you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, let's open them up to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, we have hardback black Bibles under every chair that you could open up to Matthew 10. That's on page 815. You can open a phone or a tablet, though I think you'll get a better place in heaven if it's made of paper. I don't know how to prove that other than just what I feel in my heart. If you're online, hey, click that little Bible tab and you can open up to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, Matthew 10, Matthew 10. That's where we're at today. Uh, As you're turning there, my daughter Harper turned six this week. So uh, uh, that's two hands, she's been telling me. Two hands, right? Nobody cares except for her. Two hands, that's a big deal. Two hands, okay? Um, and I know, how, I know how old our church is by how old my daughter is because she was born the same year we planted this church. So our church is six years old. She's six years old as well. She's really into trolls right now. Trolls, okay? So we had a trolls-themed birthday party at my house yesterday. Nothing like a bunch of naked, mythical creatures with gems in their navel. I, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but we did it, okay? So she's into it. Um, and it. And it got me kind of reminiscing a little bit this week back onto other things that she's been into. I've told you about these over the course of our years together. Before Trolls, she was on a Barbie kick. And then before Barbie, it was Toy Story. And before that, it was Moana. Before that, it was horses, just horses, okay? And then before that, it was Mickey Mouse. And, and, and before that, it is a well-known fact at Fathom Church that my daughter's first love on the big screen was frozen, okay? So I'm gonna give you another frozen illustration, okay? Just so you're aware. Uh, but, but frozen, when she was three, when Harper was three, frozen was it. It was the be all end all of her entire life. It rotated around frozen. She loved it, but she only loved parts of it. At first, Harper only loved parts of the movie because it's not one of those movies that you can just put on to babysit your kids while you go and do other things that you wanna do, right? Not that we would ever do that. Never, never. But, but if you were hypothetically going to sit your kid in front of a TV, Frozen may not be the best babysitting choice for a three-year-old because it has some scary scenes. There's some scenes that are kind of scary. There were parts that she did not like at all. Uh, and then there were parts that she loved. So here's the part she loved. She loved when they're building a snowman. Do you want to build a snowman? Yes, that was her answer. She wanted to build a snowman always. Uh, she loved Let It Go. Let it go, let it go. She didn't know any of the other words. She would sing it. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. That was the song for a while there, okay? She loved that. She loved building the ice castle. She loved the love, the, the friendship, the sisters. But, but then there were some parts of the movie she didn't like. There were parts that just irked her, that scared her, that frightened her. Like when Elsa created a terrifying snow monster in an attempt to kill her sister. Didn't like that. By the way, Disney is sketchy. Right? How is that appropriate for a three-year-old? I don't know, okay? Um, but she was scared of that. It's kind of scary, okay? Uh, she, she didn't like the dark scenes with the evil Hans and, you know, he's mean to uh, Anna. If you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you, okay? 
but that we know, okay? Uh, she didn't like when Elsa would fight with ice. Like, it scared her. It, it frightened her. It kind of made her unnerved. She didn't like to watch that. She just liked the pretty part, okay? But, but here's the thing that we noticed uh, after a little while of watching Frozen. Because the only thing that she saw were the happy, pretty parts, she didn't know the whole story. She didn't actually know Frozen. She just knew bits and pieces of it. Like she didn't understand that these girls were orphaned when their parents died at sea. That's sad. She didn't like that part. We skipped that part. She didn't get that Elsa cared so much about her own self-identity and self-expression that she was willing to put at risk her entire town and even her sister's life. Can can I just, does anybody feel any sympathy that I know these things? (laughs) Okay, so just feel for me for a moment. I feel sorry for me. She just thought it was a story about beautiful princesses building snowmen. That's what she thought. So, so we'd skip through the parts that she didn't like, right? We'd just skip right over them. We'd start from the making a snowman scene to Hans and Anna fall in love to let it go. And then we'd skip all the way to them ice skating at the very end and everybody's happy. And that's all we watched. She wanted none of the hard or scary parts. Now, Kyle so graciously brought up last week that I have been giving my sermons in this series kind of fun, kitschy titles. Thanks, Kyle, for outing me. Today's title is this, I Ain't Scared. And you have to pronounce scared, scared, okay? I ain't scared, okay? This is the, the, the sermon title today. Today is one of the scary, hard parts of the Gospel of Matthew. And, and I think that sometimes as evangelical Christians, we can kind of play like my daughter played with Frozen when it comes to the, to the scriptures. I mean, we love the happy parts, of this thing, right? We, we love that God is gracious and loving and that he is about restoration and care and he's about hope and, and we love these things about God. We love them. But we don't, however, like hearing about the other parts that might be a little scarier. It might be a little bit more fearful about. And today in Matthew chapter 10, we find a difficult saying of Jesus, a very difficult saying, and, and now hear me, we can't just fast forward or skip over this and only preach the fun stuff. There are plenty of places that do that, okay? But because, because if you don't know the hard parts of the story, you don't know the story. If you don't know the hard parts of the scriptures, listen to me, you don't know the scriptures, okay? If you don't know the hard parts about Jesus, then listen, it's just a pretty girl in a dress playing with a snowman, So now that you're all beaming with excitement and enthusiasm, uh, let's go. Let's get after this. Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Let's look at, uh, we're going to start at verse 26 today. Matthew 10, 26. So have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now we have to set up context because we're, we're stepping into the middle of a chapter here. So what's going on? Who is the them? He says, so have no fear of them. Well, who's the them that we are not supposed to be afraid of, apparently? Uh, Well, if you remember last week, the them is those who will persecute you because of your faith. I mean, this is what we, Kyle taught us last week, that Jesus is teaching his followers that if they are faithful in following him, that if they faithfully follow after Christ, they will come up against opposition. They will be hated 
is what Jesus said. That if you follow Christ faithfully, the reaction of people around you and the world around you isn't to welcome you and accept you. It's persecution and opposition and hate. And and that's the people who you shouldn't fear. Jesus says, hey, don't fear those people. Why? Why shouldn't we be, be afraid or be scared of those people who will hate us, who will persecute us, who will drag us before leaders? Well, because he says everything is going to come to light. It's all going to come to light. He says this in verse 27. Verse 27, he says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So, so what he's saying is that all the stuff that Jesus has taught them in the dark. So the last three chapters, he's been kind of doing miracles and putting on display his power and his authority and teaching the disciples kind of on the side, whispering in their ears, teaching them in the dark as it were. And now in a, in a way they, they are, they're being sent out and are kind of like graduating from that class and being sent out to do this, to proclaim these truths now in the light from the housetops, from the rooftops. Essentially, it's time to go public is what he's saying. It's time to go public and be hated. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that, he says. Now, look at verse 28. And do not fear. So that's the second time he says, do not fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, to which if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, is that supposed to make me feel better, Jesus? right? Like, don't fear. What's the worst thing they can do to you? Kill you? Yeah. That's the part that scares us, Jesus. It seems reasonable, but Jesus is like, hey, don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He goes on, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, fear God. Don't fear those who can just kill your body. In other words, what he's saying here is this, as your fear of God increases, and I mean like reverent, honoring fear. Not like I'm terrified, but like trembling at his feet, fear for who he is. As your fear of God increases, your fear of man in the world will decrease. It will put it into proper perspective. That's Jesus' point. And now he's going to illustrate this. He illustrates this in verses 29 and 30. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. So there's two illustrations right here. He is illustrating why we are not to fear. And he first uses a bird. He uses a sparrow. Now, I don't know if you know birds, if you know sparrows. uh, in In the New Testament, sparrows were food. Like you would eat sparrows, doesn't sound great to me, but you would eat sparrows. And sparrows were kind of the lowest of the, the, the birds that you would eat. They were the cheapest. They were considered food for the poor, sparrows were. And he says, two sparrows cost one penny. Now, in Roman culture, the penny was the smallest unit of coin, of coinage. And one penny was about one hour of a daily worker's wage. So a one hour wage is a penny, and that buys you two birds that you can eat. So all that he is doing, here's his logic. He's saying, hey, the God who is in charge of all things for all of eternity, he also cares for the smallest sparrow, not even worth half a penny. He knows when it falls. How much more will he care for you? His beloved son or daughter. 
If he cares for the birds, if he cares for the sparrow, this meaningless, essentially, bird, how much more will he love and care for you? And then he talks about hair. Uh, uh, I'm reading a book called The Body that was recommended to me uh, by Justin. And uh, The Body is an interesting book all about the body, like the physical body. And I just read the chapter on hair, which sounds fascinating, I know, right? Uh, but it was. Did you know that nobody knows how many hairs people have on their body? Like, nobody knows this. Biologists, I guess, uh, estimate that, that they suggest that you have in the region of between two and five million hair follicles on your body. That's a wide range of error, in my opinion. Two to five million hair follicles. And then you've got anywhere between 100, maybe 200,000 hairs on your head at any given time, but you're losing them constantly and you're growing new ones constantly. The whole idea here is nobody knows how many hairs you have on your head except God. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He is in charge of everything in the entire cosmos. And yet he is so intimate that he knows every strand of hair on your head. Guys, he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many hairs used to be on your head. He knows how many hairs are going to be on your head. He knows all of those things. Ladies, he knows what color your hair used to be. He knows what it's going to be. He knows all of these things. That's what he is saying. So why can we say, I ain't scared? Why can we say this? Because he knows us. Why don't we have to fear? Because the almighty sovereign creator of everything, while he is huge and transcendent, he is also personal and intimate. He knows you. Verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's the third time that he said, fear not, three times. When Jesus says something three times, it's a sign that you should pay attention. That's what he's saying. Fear not. And it's the first, I'm only going to give you two points today. It's the first of my two points today. The reason you don't have to be scared is this. You are valued by him. You are valued by him. Essentially, it's this. Do you know who your father is? You ever get in a fight as a kid with other kids and you're just like, just wait until I tell my dad. Like you use your dad, like your dad's gonna come beat on some seven-year-old, right? But like, essentially, like, do you know who my dad is? Do you know who your father is? Christian here, do you know who your dad is? He's transcendent. He knows all things and yet he is intimate and involved in your details and he's your father. He's your dad. He's crazy about you. You're valued by him. So you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared. He's got the whole world in his hands and he's crazy about you. Those two truths are seemingly opposite yet they are not. So when I was growing up, uh, we didn't go to church. I wasn't raised in the church. I got saved when I was 16. So uh, we didn't go to church as kids, no Sunday school. Um, but my dad would take me skiing on Sundays, like a good Coloradan, right? Sundays were ski day. So we would go skiing. Okay. And uh, you know what I worried about on those ski trips? Absolutely nothing. I never, I, I never worried or was afraid of anything because I was with my dad. I never 
I never worried how we were going to get to the ski mountain. I never thought about traffic or weather or what. I knew how we were going to get there. I knew how we were going to get to the mountains every single time. And this was before everybody had like a four-wheel drive off-roading vehicle. But, but I knew how we were going to get there. You see, my dad drove a 1980s blue Ford Econoline van with curtains and a bench seat that folded into a bed in the back. That's how we were going to get to the mountain, was in the blue Econoline, okay? So we would get onto I-70, and we'd start heading up I-70, and you know, if there was any snow on the road, we'd have to pull over, and my dad would pull out a box of chains from the back of the van, and we'd have to chain up. Anybody do this recently? No, you didn't. No, nobody does this anymore except for truckers, but we would chain up with the truckers. And, and did, did we worry about safety? Did I worry about safety? Never. We never worried about safety. In the Econoline, there were two captain seats in the front, and then the second row was two more captain's seats, and then the back, like I said, was this bench seat that folded back into a bed. Now, every once in a while, I'd be hanging out in the back area, and I'd lose like a piece of candy or something down in that little fold in the seat, like just getting down in there, and so I'd dig around, and I'd pull something out, and I'd be like, Daddy, what is this? It was the seatbelt. It was just stuck down. I'd pull it. Daddy, what's this? And my dad would say, would say, son, tuck that back down in there. Tuck that, you're just going to swing around and hurt somebody. Just put that back down in there. I'd just be like, okay, daddy. And I'd shove that thing back in there and eat my gobstopper or whatever, right? Like, I was never, I just wasn't afraid. I wasn't worried. When we got there, did I worry about ski tickets? No. Don't worry about skis? No. Boots, poles? No. Any of my gear? No. Dad had packed the van. He'd done it all. My dad had everything under control. And you know what that allowed me to not do? Freak out. Because my dad had this. Church, a lack of fear is to characterize the life of a Christian because of who our dad is. Why, how can we not be afraid? We know who our father is. Is Christ's purpose here is to encourage his disciples that in the midst of all this opposition and hatred and persecution and, and all that is going to come, uh, the hatred of these disciples, all of that is going to come. And he says, you don't need to be afraid because the sovereign God is in charge, not you. I've got this is what Jesus says. This is who your dad is and you're valued by him. Now, he makes a second point, I think. So let's look down to verse 34. 34, do not think I, that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we got to pause here. And I've brought this up in previous sermons. This is a passage that's difficult to digest because Jesus just said, I didn't come to bring peace which seems to go counter to many things that he has said in the past. Like the prophecies, one of the prophecies in Isaiah around who Jesus would be, who the Messiah would be, one of the names is Prince of Peace. But he didn't come to bring peace. If anybody should have brought peace, it's Prince of Peace. That's my thought. Okay, the angel announced at his birth in Luke chapter 2, if you remember, you know, remember Peanuts and Linus in the room reading the scriptures, if that's the only place you've ever heard this, okay? I bring tidings of great joy and peace on earth, goodwill towards men, peace on earth. Jesus shows up, where's the peace? Well, I didn't come to bring that peace. What's he saying here? 
He even says this at the end of his life in the Gospel of John before he leaves his disciples. He says, my peace, I leave with you. So Jesus, did you come to bring peace or did you not come to bring peace? Because that'd be real helpful to understand here. The question we have to ask is what kind of peace is he talking about here? What kind of peace? See, when we think about the word peace, we often think of, of like this peaceful, easy feeling. Thanks, John Denver, right? Like, oh, babbling brooks and everything is right and victory and trial, no, no, no challenge, no circumstances that are, that are full of strife, right? Make peace, not war. Like these are the, the popular versions of peace. It's this absence of conflict, Right? It's this, this, this favorable circumstance and, and comfort and safety and self-satisfaction and just, it feels peaceful. See, the Bible, though, when it talks about peace, it has a much broader understanding of the word. It talks about, you've probably heard this word, uh, about shalom. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it's this Old Testament idea that, like, that everything is as it should be. That all is Right, that, that we are wholly connected with God. Shalom. And that kind of peace, Jesus does actually come to bring. He brings that in salvation, right? In salvation in Christ, we find that kind of peace for our souls. But then the kind of circumstantial peace that's fluttering away, that peaceful, easy feeling. I think that's what Jesus is, is saying here. I didn't come to bring circumstantial peace. I didn't come to bring fleeting peace, but rather a sword. Now he's going to elaborate on this. Look at verse 35. He says, for I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, which I don't think he needed to add because I thought that would happen anyway, but he did anyway. 36, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's saying, hey, the peaceful, easy feeling thing, it's actually, what I'm bringing is, it's a sword and that sword might divide. Even those closest to you, a sword of the gospel, it might divide parents and children. It might divide brothers and sisters. It might divide in-laws and on and on he goes. Now, this is really important. Jesus isn't saying that our job as Christians is to bring strife into our families. Okay. You're not just supposed to like be on a mission to make everything in your family awkward because you're a Christian now. Certainly not. But he is saying that if we follow him, it might bring some strife into our families it might bring up some stuff that, I mean, you're just not gonna, you, you cannot be the same person, you can't behave the same way because you're not that same person anymore. And when you walk, home, walk into your house as a Christian and your whole family isn't used to that, it could bring some strife. It can bring some, swords divide. There could be division. Now, I've already told you a little bit about my family, but uh, because we weren't raised in church, uh, that means that now as a, as a believer, I'm a first generation Christian in my home. Okay, I got saved. My mom actually did get saved about the same time as I did. Uh, but but, but it's, it's fascinating because our family and our extended family, we're not really Christians. We're not like, I mean, we would say that. We'd check we're Christians on the box just as much as we wouldn't check that we're Buddhist. You follow me there? But we weren't Christians. And so this generation of believers in my family is the first generation. And, and what that means is that that can sometimes make things awkward. At best, awkward. At worst, heated. 
it can become very uncomfortable. Like I talk about my dad a fair amount um, and, and I really love him. I love him. I respect him a ton. We have a great relationship. He's not a Christian. And so even though we don't share all the same spiritual beliefs, like I still love and honor him, but I often wonder, I've told you this before, I often wonder what went on in his head when all of a sudden me and my brother and my mom all became Christians when I was in high school. Like I wonder what was going on in his head. Like what kind of freaky cult got a hold of my, my family? Like we talk about being equally yoked, like being equally yoked in marriage. Well, they were equally yoked. My mom and my dad were equally yoked away from Jesus. And then Jesus saves me and my mom and my brother. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a break in our family. It caused some strife. It caused some division. Some of you in this church, man, you're maybe newer to Christianity or maybe you've been in church for a while, but, but maybe this is the first time you're really kind of taking this thing seriously. And, and, and listen, if, if you go back into your old world with your new flesh on, with your new identity in Christ on, it's going to freak some people out because you aren't who they remember. You're not going to be able to do the same things you used to do. Okay, it's going to freak some people out. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus is saying, hey, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Because this is it's, it could mess up your family. That's what he says. Now, now he's going to end this section by saying something really interesting. Uh, in verses 37 to 39, uh, he's going to do something that actually echoes the, the couple verses that I skipped. I skipped 32 and 33. We'll go back to those, okay? But 32, 33, 37 through 39 kind of do the same thing. So let me read both of those little sections and then explain, okay? So, so look at verse 32, Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now down to 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here's what's going on. Jesus is taking all that he has said and taught about discipleship in chapters eight, nine, and 10. And now he's combining it with everything he said in chapter 10 about sending out his disciples onto mission and bringing them along in the work of evangelism and sharing the gospel. And he's kind of combining these and giving essentially an ultimatum. He's already said, this is what it's going to cost you to be my disciple. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. I'm going to send you out. And now he's kind of giving them this ultimatum. He's saying, no matter what this costs you, it's worth it following me, no matter what it costs you, it is worth it. He's saying, unless you love Jesus most, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss what's going on. He's saying this, you have to be willing to take your very cross. Now, and he's not talking about like a piece of jewelry or something that you hang on your wall as a decoration. He's talking about the means of execution, your very death sentence. He's saying you have to carry that. And it's my second point about uh, being I ain't, this I ain't scared thing. You don't have to be scared because you're valued by him, but you also don't have to be scared because you find your life in him. You're valued by him, 
but you also find your life in him. Now hear me. If you look for true life anywhere besides Jesus, you'll be left wanting. You'll be let down. You'll never really find it. See, you won't find it in your family. You won't find true life in your family because because your family can change on you in a blink of an eye. You, You won't find it in your job because even if you build the job and, you, and, you, and you, they name the building after you and you are the successful guy, the reality is this, your job will eventually outlast you. They'll replace you with somebody younger than you and you will be forgotten. You can't find life in your relationships. Goodness, we know how fragile these temporal earthly relationships are. If you try to find your life in the things this world has to offer, you will be let down. I promise you, if you accomplish everything, every goal that you ever set out, if you make all the money, if you take all the trips, if you grab a hold of all the toys and you get everything that your heart desires, well, the problem is that this world, as you grab a hold of it, it grabs a hold of you and it cannot cash that check. It cannot cash in on that. Hear me, you, we live in a world that cannot satisfy you. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying that he's not promising that he's going to make everything better in your life. He's saying, I'm better than life. Jesus isn't saying that there won't be hard things if you you follow him. He's saying, I'm better than those scary things. I'm better than those fears. He's not saying, he's not promising you peace, like this peaceful, easy feeling, even within your own family. He's saying, hey, I am peace, and you will have me, and that will be more than enough. If we lose our life for his sake, we actually find our life in him. Now, before we close up, um, I'm trying to think of like how to bring this one home in a way that's not terrible. Uh, And I couldn't figure it out. So uh, I want us to turn one more place in our scriptures to John chapter 20. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can. uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So turn to the right, a couple of books, John chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. I'll put this one on the screens as well, but it's good to see it with your own eyes. John chapter 20. uh, Let me give you the recap of what happened before we get to our text. Here's what's happened in John. Jesus has been killed. He's been crucified. He has been buried, okay? And he has been raised from the dead, resurrected by God. And now in John chapter 20, verse 19, we find the encounter of him meeting his disciples for the first time since his resurrection. And let's see what he says to his disciples. John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, that day is the resurrection day. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so it's Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has just called the 12 disciples together to send them out. 
John chapter 20, the same 12, or actually 11, okay, Judas missed the boat, um, but the 11 same disciples after Jesus' death are now up in a room with the door locked and barred. And did you see why? It says, for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. They were scared. Jesus is dead. Jesus is gone. And they're afraid. Is that same persecution? I mean, the Jews and the Romans killed Jesus. What are they going to do to us? And so they're afraid and they lock the door. But Jesus shows up and (laughs) do you see what he says? Twice? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And then it says he breathes on them which I don't know what resurrected breath smells like, but I bet it's better than mine, okay? He breathes on them and it says they receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. And then he sends them out. The very same thing that he said in Matthew chapter 10. And now these guys cowering in fear will go to leave that room and go on and start the church. That's what they're going to do. They're going to leave that room and they're going to start the church in the midst of all their fear, in the midst of all the swords, as it were, against them, the heavy persecution. There will be hundreds of years where Christians are hunted down and killed for their faith. And yet these guys do it. They're given courage and they start this movement of which, by the way, we are partaking in this morning. So what happened? Like, how do you move from cowering in an upper room to courage to start the church. How do they get to the point where they can legitimately say, I ain't scared. 10 out of the 11 apostles will go on to be martyred for their faith, never renouncing the Lord Jesus. How do they get to this point? I think it's that, I think it's that breath. I mean, like the presence of Jesus comes into the room, into the fear, peace be with you. And then he breathes on them and he extends to them his presence, the Holy Spirit, and they're emboldened. They aren't scared anymore. Here's the point. Peace isn't found in the absence of fear. It's found in the presence of Jesus. It's not found when there's no more things to be afraid of found when you realize that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That Holy Spirit that he gives means that his presence will never again leave them. The presence of Jesus that left them and caused them to go cower in fear now belongs to them that through the spirit of Jesus, he would be present for all time in every place in the life of every follower of Christ. So listen, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian in here, online, at home, if you are in Christ, you have his presence, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And hear me, he is the Prince of Peace. He is peace, so you don't have to be afraid. But you must have a relationship with him. If you want peace, and I mean shalom, not that peaceful, easy feeling, but real, lasting peace that will supersede all of the trials and storms of life, you must have a relationship with Christ. 
peace is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of Christ. And some of you, listen, today, maybe in this room, maybe online, you need to start a relationship with Jesus. You need to have that presence come into your life. You need to say, Jesus, I give you my life and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And even though maybe none of your circumstances will get peaceful, you will have his peace on you because you will have his presence in you. And to those who already follow Jesus, to those of us who are Christians in Christ, here's what God has for us today. He's sending us into this world. And it's a world that's full of fear. There's things to be afraid of. There's strife that will come. It's full of enemies. I mean, Kyle taught us this last week, but listen, like if you believe in the exclusivity of the gospel, that not all roads lead to eternity, but really Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. If you believe that, the world does not like that message. They will hate you. If you believe the biblical sexual ethic of one man, one woman in one marriage for one lifetime, that is so countercultural that people will hate you. By the way, you will be called a bigot for believing that. It's no longer neutral. The world is not getting less hateful to those who faithfully follow the word of God. God is sending you, Christian, me, Christian, into this world, but he just promised you that he's with you. The presence of Christ is with you. That's the promise. And that's what can give us courage. That's what will give us peace. And that's how we can faithfully and honestly say, with all the mess around us, I ain't scared. So yeah, these are some of the harder parts of the Gospel of Matthew. These are some of the harder parts of following Jesus. This is not just a princess building snowmen. But this is the whole story. This is the whole story, church. Let's meditate deeply on these things. Let's, let's think deeply about what Jesus says to us. You're valuable to him. He loves you. He's crazy about you. He is acknowledging you before his father in heaven right now. And you will find your life in him. You might lose it, but it's the only way to find it. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we're blessed to, to read these hard words. We're blessed because we know that in them is, is life, is truth. Even though they're hard, even though they're scary, even though they promise us hardship. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we feel like we can trust this book, Father. It's because you wouldn't withhold these hard messages. This is a really good way to, to turn people off from Jesus. And yet these are the words of life, that we will be hated, that we will be persecuted. God, help us to not to be tempted to try and make Jesus cool or make the gospel more relevant. The, the reality is this is um, like a sword, Father. The good news of, of the scriptures, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they're like a sword. But Lord, I pray that 
the, the, the kind of sword, like a scalpel that would do, do work, that would cut out dead, that would cut out unhealth, that we would be refined by it. And Lord, that then we would be emboldened and encouraged to go out and use it for your glory, not to, not to intentionally turn people off, but to faithfully proclaim who you are. And we can be bold in that because we have you in us. Holy Spirit, we pray you fill us. You give us the courage that the, the apostles had. You give us the ability to, to withstand these attacks. Give us what we need, reminding us that you love us. Father, thank you. Thank you for these hard words. We pray that we learn from them and that we meditate upon them and that they change us from the inside out. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.